Chapter 2 The Land of Ortnot Once upon a time, tucked deep in the woods, there was a shack. And in addition to the fairies, trolls, bandits, and shadows that were never far away, a woman lived there. Her long hair moved as if autumn and winter danced. The curves on her body were soft, and her heart was like a daffodil against the grey spring sky. On the far edge of this forest lived the little girl, and for her it was a full-time job living alone amongst the busy lives of her family. The worlds in her mind were there long before she was brought into this one, full of schedules that build boxes around the what ought to be to keep out the ought not. But no matter how much she tried, the ought not was never far away. It climbed with the springtime ivy and sprouted through the tender flesh of autumn's ripe fruit. It scratched against the winter sky with the nails of barren trees and drenched her shoulders with the glance of summer's sun. She often went to the land of Ortnot as she stowed away in closets, under her bed, or in the woods where she penned hundreds of poems, letters, and theories and mailed them, buried in glass jars everywhere she went for 13 years. Dear Flower Lady, it feels like life is a dream, and everyone has their own parts to the dream. But then, everyone is in their own dream too. At the same time, I'm in mine. And they are different dreams in the same place. I used to have a ghost in my room, and there's another ghost in the room over the kitchen. I know he's there. I can feel him. And there's like electric tickles on my neck and my arms and in my heart when he is near. I told my mom about the ghosts and then she told me about the people that died at our house. So I think if they are still here and they are able to tell me things and their memories, then you are really real too. Age six. By the time she was seven, the world pulled her further into the land of Ought Not, where life felt harmonized and cycled. The outside world, the land of Ought, stressed the importance of doing the things one is supposed to, of competition, both passive and aggressive, and of focusing on goals so they could grow up and work in the same manner a you'll-be-happy-when kind of world. Life was full of tests and tasks to complete, and it always seemed people went about life as if it were a problem to solve. For example, rather than letting the leaves decay beneath the tree to feed the soil, they were raked and moved. Who rakes the forest's leaves? She would ask every year. No one, was the simple reply. Then why do we rake our leaves? If a forest knows how to be a forest, don't our trees know how to be trees? She would ask as the combs continued their gatherings. 
A task complete. Dear Flower Lady, There's a reason life isn't just a line from start to finish. I figured it out because my day isn't a straight line. It doesn't end when I go to bed. Sometimes I wait to the middle of the night to feel the page turn to the next day. But it doesn't flip or swish or anything. I just keep going and then the birds start to sing and the clouds are moving and the sun comes up. And I tried to feel if there was a giant's hand moving me like I was in his dollhouse game, but there were no fingers moving me. My favorite life this morning was seeing the dew on the grass and the spider web near the fence. Everyone's life around here seems to be the same, like school is a machine. I show up to learn the same as everyone else, but I cannot. Our questions have to be about what is being taught, and that is the same at home. It is like an invisible fence on both sides of the road, guiding us to the land of ought. Age seven. It's been suggested that folklore is based on some sort of truth, but that we live in a world where the mind is gradually closing. Where tolerance is replaced with the ever-increasing belief in formalized doctrines and nihilism. One onset of these modern beliefs was marked by what is commonly known as the Dark Ages, where, unlike other periods in history, important records did not survive, leaving, in many ways, this era lost to history. Some say that to protect a fragile ecosystem of hallowed races, a veil crept in over the lakes, blanketed the valleys, and then climbed the alpines to shield the mythical world from the brazen destruction of man. Sometimes, though, on rare occasions, the veil would thin enough for someone to reach through. And on the night the little girl tripped by the riverbank, bringing the jar with the blue envelope to the pine tree, that is just what happened. A veiled creature named Untel, who looked like a cross between a wood elf and a troll, watched her dust her hands and knees while leaning against a fallen tree by the creek. His eyes moved to the jar that flowed toward the low bubbling rapids, and he decided to breach the veil's barrier to snatch it. He took it into the boulder tunnels that had become a place to house forgotten relics and secrecies. The tunnel floors were made from an ancient volcanic vent and lined in smooth onyx. Granite walls were adroitly chiseled into shelving by skilled fay artisans. And this is where Untel placed the jar. Oh, I tried to find the jar, but it must have fallen into the abyss. Or it might have been stolen. I've got to get it back to the pine, though. The little girl explained to her china doll, Kitty, as they hid the next afternoon in the linen closet. The message was so important. She laid back into a pile of laundry where her focus blurred overhead. Rain began to drip from the closet ceiling 
as lightning rumbled over the distant hills of the Wild West, where the drifter started counting. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. He was counting to make sure the storm hadn't decided to change its course. Cause I ain't changing mine, he said. The drifter had finally made his way to the Northwestern Territories from the Deep South. Skirmishes and battles scattered the entire trail. Most recently, he was drafted to fight in the second phase of the Yakima War, also known as the Spokane-Cordelaine-Palouse War. He was tired of war and questioned the taking of lands from the native people. Now that he was released from Colonel Wright's command, he had a chance for freedom. But with so much killing and screaming and bloodshed, he wondered how anyone could find peace. That's all he wanted. No more pleadings clawing at his mind. And he set off to find a quieter life, thinking it'd be best to follow the Oregon Trail to the west side of Mount Hood. Because it was already broken in. Well, the trail might have been broken in, but it was not exactly like an old comfortable pair of boots, as he quickly found out. The mountains stood as centuries, wielding ominous weather, and provided accommodations for fierce predators. The mountain lions watched the drifter curiously while he set traps to gather pelts for bartering. Grizzly bears and black bears raided his camp, eating the food he'd caught and had no problem protecting their territory. He quickly learned the smell of a bear when it lumbered his way by the sweet pungent scent of death that coated its fur and rancid breath that dripped from the sag of its drooping lower lip. After months of hunting, the drifter had finally gathered enough pelts for a good meal and a seat on a westbound stage. Days passed in town trying to broker a deal at the trading post. Unfortunately, being new to collecting pelts, his offerings at the post were less than perfect and not quite enough for the trip westward. So, hoping to make up for his lack of experience in the fur trade, he tried his luck at the blackjack table, winning some and losing more. Days went by, and it seemed the longer he sat in town, the louder the cries from war in his mind became. He began drinking with hopes of drowning the images, and his nights were becoming full of sweats. His room was above the saloon where the whoops and hollers of the men and women below did nothing to help. Putting the bottle down, he chose to set out on foot. At least when he was moving, the bayonet of war lancing his soul was yoked into some control. The path was arduous and long. Stage after stage passed him by with not even one stopping to offer the smallest drop of water. Well, that's gonna change, he announced openly. Then, as sure as the day turns into night, the drifter became 
the bandit. It had been three days since he held up the afternoon stage. The horse he took from the robbery got loose the second night, and because of this, the bandit was left on foot. Knowing people were looking for him, he took to the trees. The woods were different than those he was living in only a month before. Prehistoric-sized ferns followed the creek upriver. Woodpeckers foraged in the canopy above overgrown skunk cabbage, and squirrels jumping from limb to limb vied for a look at the newcomer. Beavers slapped the waters with their heavy flat tails while building dams by the creek, and Douglas fir trees whispered their secrets through the vast underground fungi pathways. The bandit had just about found a place to rest in the understory when he stopped in his tracks. Voices, his mind said, warning his feet. That's what they're saying. Got the whole stage. No kidding. How much was there? What? You thinking of jumping the bandit? And why not? Cause, you dummy, the reward's more than what was in that box. The bandit furrowed his brow and quickly tried to open the small box, but he didn't have the key. So ever so quietly, he started to dig where he was, between two lichen-covered boulders. The ground was soft. He got about two feet down when a rock slide suddenly shook the earth around him, and just as suddenly, the ground opened into what must have been an underground tunnel. The cave-in blocked both tunneling sides, though. Rocks lined the walls with shelves carved by artisan craftsmen. Beads, gems, and colorful vials adorned them. But the one thing that caught his attention the most was a simple glass jar protecting a blue envelope. Glancing about over his shoulders and with listening ears, he hesitantly grabbed the jar and took the note. And just as he did, a strange form of heat vapor rose from the shadows and moved in the margin of sight. The movement was like a gust without the wind. Branches swayed and the brook splashed all as natural as can be but eyes could be felt upon the bandit's skin. He scrambled to climb out while a warmth of breath settled upon the nape of his neck. He quickly brushed around his collar where his hair was standing on end. Who's there? No answer. Uh, I know you're there. Uh, I ain't doing no harm. The air cooled with a cover of clouds as a drizzle started back up. Just passing through. He clambered up the newly formed embankment using ivy as rope, pulling with all his might. Whatever it was, was closing in. He could feel it, and he ran. Are you kidding me? The bandit thought to God above when the men looking for the reward saw him. Hey. Hey, you. One of the men called out. Hey, you okay there, mister? The bandit groused under his breath and kept running. That's him! That's the bandit! The man tugged on his counterpart's sleeve. 
Mud sloshed underfoot, causing the bandit to skid over exposed rocks. He fell and the men just about had him. That's when he threw the box from the stage to make his getaway. He ran until he couldn't run anymore. Another day of slower running and rain passed before he found the old shack and bunkered in for the night. The next morning, he was starving and had to find something to eat.